Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Kazazi, and today we have the increasingly well-known British pathologist, Dr. Claire Craig, joining us to talk real COVID science. Not the pseudoscience that we are incessantly fed through the mouths of our political leaders and the watered-down press. No, this is the real stuff. Dr. Claire Craig, as you will soon find out, is an experienced pathologist with an exemplary career in education, as well as being highly committed to ever sharpening her scientific knowledge and relevance. This episode is a synthesis of the most important scientific questions Adaptation has received regarding the COVID UK response in recent weeks. We cover a great deal and should provide essential context and scientific insight to the whole nation, no matter your beliefs and position regarding our government's actions. I know it's a long interview due to the breadth of topics that we cover, the need to answer them with sufficient depth, and quite frankly, this unique situation to get such an expert speak at length to our many scientific curiosities. So I won't apologize for the length because I think you'll enjoy it immensely However, as a top tip, do try listening to this at, say, one and a half speed. It sounds pretty good, given our natural speed of speaking, and condenses the listening down quite a fair bit. You can expect to hear us cover asymptomatic transmission, case definition, the SAGE, PCR testing, lateral flow testing, excess deaths, hospital pressures, the new variant, false positives, herd immunity, immunity metrics, interesting alternative surveillance, and much, much more. It's an absolutely jam-packed episode. And in my opinion, this is essential listening for everyone. And I, for one, learned a great deal in this interview with Dr. Claire. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging or sharing this episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. In particular, please encourage your friends and family to take a listen and gift them with this essential knowledge that will help widen and expand our public understanding of the actual science regarding COVID. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out the Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, let's get into the COVID conversation that should be happening on mainstream media, but isn't, with the highly capable and courageous Dr. Claire Craig. I'm delighted and excited to welcome Dr. Claire Craig on the Adaptation Mics today, who is a UK pathologist for almost 20 years and a much needed voice of reason and science during the craziness of 2020. Welcome on the show, Claire. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's a true pleasure. Honestly, I've been very excited about 
trying to speak with you. Um, you, as I say, have brought lots of balance, rationality, science, and calm to what has been an absolutely crazy and hyperbolic year. And what a year it's been for you, right? I mean, maybe you can give us a, you can fill in the blanks, but I know you've been on talk radio with Julia. Uh, you produced a number of articles and papers recently on testing and COVID reporting. I know you've partnered with the likes of Dr. Yeadon and Panda.org and Lockdown Skeptics, etc. And you've built quite the following on Twitter um, as an evidence-based COVID skeptic. So is how would you characterize this year for you? Have I captured the the highlights of you know the effort you've been pouring into 2020? Um yeah, it's quite funny you saying all of that because it made it sound like I'd intended any of that to happen. And really it was it was I'm not the kind of person that likes publicity. I know that doesn't may not appear that way, but I really I don't like it at all. I'm I'm quite a quiet introverted person. But I just got to a point where I had proven to myself that what the situation we'd got into and felt it had to be shared and naively thought that people would understand it and that that would be the end of that mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the rest of it has just been a consequence of me kind of you know just desperately trying to get the message out there somehow and um and slowly I think getting somewhere but it has been a much slower journey than I had expected. Yeah, now I, I completely understand. And I think most people that have kind of dedicated their soul and their brain to, um, you know, the rationality of, of of science in this year have, I don't think none of them have chosen this path. And I'm sure they're massively distracted on their other pursuits, whether they be vocational or personal this year. I know I have, and I know the likes of Ivor Cummins and Yeadon, you know, none of them asked for this. Uh, yet mm. there's a calling, isn't there, of sorts to, you know, bring bring balance to the conversation. Um, maybe you can can tell the audience a little bit about your education, just briefly, your career today, and what you are currently doing from a career perspective, Claire. Sure. So um, I trained in Cambridge, then Oxford in medicine, and I went very quickly into pathology, having become a doctor because I love the science and I've always cared a lot more about diagnosis than treatment, because if you're not getting a diagnosis right, then, you know, what's the point? And um, I worked in the NHS for years um, and left the NHS in 2015 and subsequently worked for the 100,000 Genomes Project on the cancer arm. So working with big data and with kind of national programmes and NHS England and Public Health England and all of the kind of politics that went with that. Um, And then I went into artificial intelligence. um, And, you know, that's kind of where I see my career going after this, which is why I have confidence about risking my um, chances of employment in the NHS. And, you know, one of the things that's really difficult with this is that I'm in touch with a huge number of doctors who... Um, have the same concerns as me, but aren't prepared to speak out because of the way that could reflect on them for the rest of their lives. Mm. Okay, yeah, interesting. So, are you? So, are you currently in employment? No, I'm not. I'm not. I, so, I was. I had a, a poorly child actually. So, I um, wasn't looking for a job during lockdown or after lockdown, and um, started to work on this because I had a bit of time, but didn't, I wanted to be around for her. And then ended up getting into a situation where she's thankfully better, 
but I can't just walk away from mm. this. Not yet. You know, I need, I kind of would like to have an income. That would be nice. Um, but uh, this is, feels more important than that at the moment. Yeah, I understand that. I, I feel a lot of people making those same decisions. Um, talk to me about your your peers then. So you spoke about obviously having a, a large network of friends or acquaintances or previous colleagues in NHS. And I, I think it's plain to see for most people that there is definitely censorship, whether it's self-censorship, institutional censorship, or general censorship occurring online regarding what people can and can't say around this COVID pandemic and response. How would you characterize that censorship and, and why is it happening in your point of view? So there was legislation as part of the Coronavirus Act and Ofcom guidance that tried to restrict what broadcasters would say. And um, that will have had an impact undoubtedly. But I think that it was restricted to broadcasters. So the, the press shouldn't have been censored by that. So the, the way that they've presented it has been a choice on their part. But I think most of the censorship comes, as you say, is, is self-censorship. And I think that comes largely from the, because you need to understand a lot. You need to really be sure of yourself. If you're going to go against a grain, you have to be absolutely certain before you speak out. And to be absolutely certain, you have to come at it from every angle. And that takes a hell of a lot of work. It, it really was hours and hours of me being up at five in the morning and working and working, working on it before I had the confidence to say, this isn't right. There's something here that doesn't add up because, you know, you know that you'll be attacked for saying it. So you need to have the basics covered first. Now, people do not have time to be doing that. So even if they're incredibly suspicious, to be confident enough to speak out takes a bit more. And then even if they're confident enough in themselves that they understand it, if they speak out, they will be horribly attacked. I've been horribly attacked. I've been reported repeatedly to the Royal College of Pathologists and to the GMC. And if people people want to burn me as a witch. I'm just, you know, I'm the baddie out there. And of course, I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate problem is if I was wrong and this was in the middle of a pandemic, then, you know, I can be accused of, of people dying, right? So you have to be right. And, and you have to be really, really careful. So, of course, people don't speak out. And I, I appreciate you have to be right. But obviously, in science, um, truth is somewhat subjective, right? I mean, it's, it's only as true as, you know, our understanding currently exposes it to, right? You know, there's things that we, we, we consider to be, you know, the truth scientifically for years or decades. And mm -hmm. at some point in time, you know, there's a new hypothesis or there's an, a new test or a new way of challenging our thinking. And then we see something differently. So I, I agree with you. You've got to feel confident in your assertions and your observations, but we can't be truly confident about anything, can we, scientifically? Um, so... I think you're totally right. You're totally right that science isn't science unless we're constantly questioning every aspect of it. That's what science is and, and reviewing it and testing it. That's, you know, otherwise it's, it's not science. But you can have a certain amount of, you know, we, it's always a journey towards the truth, isn't it? So we get to a point where you have enough data to start steering away from one hypothesis to another. Mm. 
And, um, you know, I think we do have a huge amount of data that supports what I think. Um, but I agree that doesn't mean that it's, you know, that we shouldn't still be questioning all. Yeah. And here, herein lies the, pro- the problem. You, you should be free. Everyone should be free to ask questions, um, to show some skepticism of anything and everything in the world. And hey, if that skepticism is uh, misplaced, then hey, you, you get delivered lots of evidence and data and empirical data to say, hey, hang on a minute, your, your skepticism is unfounded. You know, this is the best body of evidence that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think you're wrong. But that just seems to have been completely removed from discussion. You can't have a debate. You can't question. You can't challenge ideas, especially if they're both, you know, you know, uh, started, funded, created and managed by one institution or one um, organization, the government. We can't be seen to challenge that. And I, I find it really concerning that there isn't a free debate. And that debate doesn't exist, whether it be in uh, the scientific council that feed into the government. It doesn't seem to be diversity of opinion. And that really worries me. Why aren't the people like you and Yeadon and others that are clearly skeptical of many of the things that we're going to talk about today, why aren't you invited to participate as a as someone that brings balance to the scientific debate? Um, you know, I think I think the kind of um, implication that there's some kind of um, deliberate attempt to not listen is is isn't totally fair. I think that there's this you know, the way that we work as humans is we have rational thought and we can argue rationally but we can be overcome by emotion. And that sort of thinking system is separate. And at the moment, people are overcome by fear and they have been throughout. And that includes the politicians and it includes the people on stage. And I think they probably wind each other up quite a lot, but they're in this bubble of fear. And when you are driven by an emotion in that way, it's very, very hard to be able to accept rational argument and to have your emotions questioned. I mean, that's what it ultimately comes down to, isn't it? We're saying that they're behaving, they're not listening because of fear and irrationality. I, I hear you, but you know, what is the consequence of inviting you, Yeadon, and a few others onto the, the sage board? I'm not suggesting you want to, or you've requested, but what is the consequence of having your input to, you know, the overall direction? Unless there's a concern that you will challenge the current thinking, cause distraction, cause, uh, you know, things to slow down and more debate when we need more certainty. I'm not quite sure what the answer is, Claire, and it's quite rhetorical, but I don't understand what the consequence of having skeptics on a board of, you know, scientific council. What, why, why, why would you not? You know, if, if you are a true scientist, you want to be challenged to ensure that you're making the right choices, no? Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that that SAGE is not quite what it appears to be. There's over 200 people in it. You know, meetings of 200 people don't happen. Mm -hmm. So they've just kind of gathered together huge numbers of people from all sorts of backgrounds. And it's quite diverse in an interesting way, which I think is a good thing. But they do absolutely lack diagnostic pathologists and virologists on that board. And they have a huge overrepresentation of behavioural scientists type fear mongers. 
Um, so, you know, if I were to be invited to join that group, I would reject it because I don't think my voice would be heard by the people who are actually in power. So I think there's a small number of people who are the real advisors to government, who make all the real decisions and who use the credentials of that group of 200 as backup. Um, mm. And I also wouldn't want it on my CV long term because I don't think it's going to be a positive thing to have. <laughs> um, this is it's interesting. Are you, are you um, aware of how influenced, I mean, and, and this might be a question that leads nowhere, but in regards to the SAGE and just general, the scientific council, whether it be NERVTAG or uh, COBRA, that didn't even really understand these these institutions per se or these these groups. But in your opinion, how much of this of, of this pandemic response has been the tail wagging the dog or vice versa? As in, is the government listening to the scientific advice? And what we're seeing is the expression of that advice. Or do you feel that the government are not listening to the advice being received from, uh, you know, the groups to being set up to, to counsel them? Have you got any read on that at all? Uh, no, I, I'm, I, I'm sure that they are listening to the advice, but I'm not sure that they're listening to advice outside of that. Um, you know, I think, they, I think they're listening to it, but the trouble is I don't think they have the skill set required to question it or to, you know, ask the right questions of it. And that's quite frightening, really, given the situation we're in. And you can kind of see how it arises that the sort of people that, you know, like numbers become scientists and the sort of people that like words become politicians. And they're often not much overlap. Um, and I, you know, I think that's where we're at, that they don't get how it could be wrong. They don't get how to question it. They don't get how they should be asking why the chief scientist and chief medical officer aren't demanding a research budget and wanting to run experiments and do research because surely that's what scientists should do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, the only reason I ask that, Claire, is I, I, there, there are, I know there's a, a group called the Indie Sage, obviously an independent you know, uh, organisation attempting to provide alternative counsel from the, you know, the official Sage group. Um, and they say you know, quite often they're not listened to you know, they come up with ideas, but, you know, their ideas are not, don't manifest into um, what the sager uh, are, are putting forward. So I just wondered if there was selective use of science based on all that is being received. But I guess well, you and I would speculate if there is or isn't. Yeah, I mean, the independent sage group are more extreme than sage. So, um, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. they are kind of slightly batty. More like, so more think, like bounds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't think that that's really offering an alternative view. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's quite, I mean, it's quite difficult, I think, for them to claim to be on top of the evidence. It's quite difficult for anyone to claim to be on top of all the evidence because it's vast. And so... They have to trust people to, you know, work through that for them. Um, and I'm not sure that people who are otherwise very busy and then attending loads of political meetings and other meetings have the time to be looking at all the evidence either. Mm. Yeah, I know. But hey, you know, the, the, the decisions are so important. You'd think they would be totally dedicated to this. But um, hey, who knows? Um, I know that there are some things that you speak about that are um 
pressing, important, and important to our fo- uh, followers and uh, listeners. So case definition, testing, um, the hospital uh, surge, um, asymptomatic transition, that kind of stuff. So I think we should go through those the best we can uh, for our time today, Claire. Let's start with case definition. So I am gobsmacked that we are almost a year in and case definition is still so... um, Well, it's precise, it's specific in how it's stated, but it's not particularly medical in nature. Could you talk to why you think there is case definition that includes symptoms if you're probable or suspected of COVID-19, but no symptomology, no symptoms required if you're a confirmed case? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, at the beginning, Public Health England got this exactly right. They published a definition of of COVID that required symptoms. And where it went wrong, in my view, was the peer pressure from other countries to produce daily data. So the need to produce a daily number, which kicked off right from the beginning, meant that the test became the diagnosis. And that, I mean, so much, so many problems stemmed from that, such that, you know, if you have a test that defines a disease rather than a bunch of symptoms, then the symptoms of that disease become defined by people who tested positive. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with an ever-increasing list of symptomatology associated with this test, including people with no symptoms at all. And it's totally back to front. That's not how medicine works. In medicine, you define a disease by a collection of symptoms and potentially other um, signs and investigations. And then you design a test that helps you to refine that. Um, but yeah, we did it the other way around. And everybody did it the other way around. And, and why? What, I mean, is there any plausibility or any sympathy or support that you have for the way things are currently done? I symptoms don't matter. We've got a test. We consider it the gold standard. And that's what we're going with. Can you see any merit why the WHO continues to this day? Their latest publication of case definition was on the 16th of December. ECDC done something similar, I think, beginning of December. They're singing from the same hymn sheet. Confirmed cases, all they need is a a NAAT test of some sort. And they're good to go. Why, Why can you find any plausibility where that makes sense? No, I mean, it doesn't make sense to do that medically, but I think they've just got themselves incredibly confused about what asymptomatic means. And and I, I was confused about this too, to be honest, at the beginning, because, you know, everything was new. So you had to kind of treat it as something that might be different to what we knew before. Um, and and it was only really once I'd started digging into it properly that some rational part of my brain kicked in and I started to look at it as if it was any old disease, right? And in any old disease, if somebody's testing positive but has no symptoms, they're one of two things. They're either a test result that's gone wrong or they're somebody who has immunity to that disease because that's what immunity is. Immunity does not create a protective bubble around you that stops viruses coming near you. Immunity is a situation where when a virus comes inside your body and could be picked up on a test, you don't notice and you have no symptoms and you usually do not spread anything because you're immune. Your your immune system will deal with it and you will be oblivious to the whole thing. 
And so when you look at it like that, you realize how to interpret all of the information that we've had about asymptomatic spread. I mean, asymptomatic at all. Um, so at the beginning, during spring, when there was a lot of real COVID around, there were several studies that showed considerable numbers of people in an outbreak who had no symptoms because they were immune. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. <laughs> and that's why, you know, that's why we're not in way more of a mess than we could be because about half of us had prior immunity from the outset. Um, and then as time went on, though the outbreaks stopped because COVID went away in the, in the spring and the summer, sorry, into the summer. Um, and when people were tested then and were asymptomatic, that was largely because of testing going wrong. And then we ramped up the testing and ramped up the testing and started screening every care home resident and screening all the staff in the NHS and doing more and more testing of people who had no symptoms. And it was all done on the premise of finding people who were pre-symptomatic so that you could stop them mm. um, spreading it before the symptoms arrived. And you know, I do think there is evidence for pre-symptomatic spread in the day, maybe day and a half before symptoms happen not it's not it's nothing like as dramatic as symptomatic spread when you're coughing it all out over people but it does exist and that you know that is a concern although actually having said that the only study I've seen that's really looked into how much of a concern was so this is the one that's probably the most pessimistic on this subject it was in Singapore and they and it was in the spring and they reckoned six percent of infections were caused by pre-symptomatic spread and the other 94% were caused by symptomatic spread. So that kind of gives you a, an idea of the risk. You know, it's, it's, it exists, but it's not the main problem. But as we kept testing and finding all these asymptomatic people, people have just got more and more confused about it. And the ratio of symptomatic to asymptomatic people testing positive has got really skewed on occasion. Um, so the... The ONS is a good measure of that because it's random testing. And at one point they had 80% of the positives having no symptoms. You're like, if you're testing real disease, then pre-symptomatic positives would count for one third of your real disease, not 80%. That shows that you're getting the testing wrong. And then that's why Hancock recently has been saying a third of people are asymptomatically spreading it. Mm -hmm. What he's trying to express with that is that if we were diagnosing real disease, one third of the positive tests would be in people who don't yet have symptoms. Um, but that's, you know, that's only if testing's working properly. So the one third um, metric is a valid metric generally around the presentation and development of a disease you would find if you tested people that were pre-symptomatic um, all the way through to having a severe disease you'd find a third of of, of those people generally would be pre-symptomatic is, is that is that what you're saying yeah so if you, you know if we tested everybody every day with a perfect test then a third of them would be pre-symptomatic and two-thirds would be symptomatic and though, although actually we know that there'd also be that long tail of positives probably but actually that wouldn't not in a perfect test a perfect test would show you that 
yeah. they would show you the third presymptomatic and two thirds symptomatic. Got but it. we don't have a perfect test. And and therefore, do you have any sympathy for uh, the argument that talks about you know you know because we can't differentiate between pre-symptomatic and I don't even use the word asymptomatic. I think it's been given too much, mm. too much airtime. It's people without symptoms. <laughs> yeah. I, they are currently not diseased. Like, let's be clear. They may even not be even anywhere on the path towards disease. They have no symptoms. So because it's difficult, uh, impossible, uh, I guess, to be able to differentiate the two between you are someone on the path towards being diseased, i.e. you're pre-symptomatic and you have no, no symptoms whatsoever, that therefore we must therefore test everyone with the assumption that you may, because I know that's what they're saying, like you have to pretend you have COVID. <laughs> Act like as if you are diseased and the world will be safer. I, I, I find that like psychological abuse. I find that absurd that they made those claims. But if you're being rational and diplomatic and you're thinking about you know the, the objectives here to try and help and protect people, do you see any mileage in having some fear of this asymptomatic transmission? Um, not at all. Not at all when we're talking about truly asymptomatic. I do not think truly asymptomatic disease exists because that is a contradiction. A disease, by definition, requires symptoms. And and I, if, if I were in charge, I, I would have had different policies in spring to now. In spring, we had uh, more susceptible people in the population. We didn't know what we were dealing with. Um, I was not anti-lockdown then. I think I maybe should have been. I think lockdown wasn't the right answer. Um, but I do think it may have slowed things a little bit, actually, but not to, I don't think it stopped anything. I don't think you can stop a virus spreading. Um, but now I would say, look, you know, there is a risk. Well, I mean, the, the first thing you have to do, of course, is just to sort out the crazy situation that we're in. So, you know, I would be saying, oh, hang on a minute. We've got these asymptomatic people testing positive. Maybe we should follow that up. huh? How about we ask if they develop symptoms mm -hmm. in any of them? Or maybe we could retest them and see if it was a mistake. We're not or doing that, with right? a different test. We're not doing any of that. And none of it's difficult. None of it's difficult. And you don't have to do it on everyone. You just do it on a sample and you prove the point. And we actually have access now to a huge range of tests for COVID, which weren't available before. Um, and which, you know, have completely changed where we're at, but they're not being used. So we have lateral flow tests, which actually they are being used, but they're not telling us what the results are because that would be embarrassing for them. Um, we have um, bedside PCR. There's this little kit called DNA Nudge, which can do a PCR run at the bedside. And it's like, as with the other PCR, it's ramped up to be really sensitive. Um, and to not miss anything, which means you're always at risk of overcalling. But people have really struggled to introduce it in hospitals because when you're trying to introduce a new test, you need to prove that what the manufacturer says it will do is what it will do on your patient population. You know, you can't just take their word for it. So you run a few experiments alongside the testing that you're currently doing. And when people have tried to do that, they couldn't find any positives, so they couldn't validate it to get it working. Um, 
And, you know, there are other antigen tests apart from lateral flow tests that the government, so the Innova one is the one that government has really bought loads of, but there are other ones available too. And we have the antibody testing. And people don't seem to um, have realised how useful that antibody test is because it's being used for random population screening to see how many of us have had it. And that's what it tells you. It tells you who had it. It doesn't tell you who's immune to it. Um, but it, for people who've got severe COVID, it, it kicks in really quite soon. So within a week of having symptoms, the, the, I can't remember the statistic now, but you, there's a large percentage of people with severe COVID that would be antibody positive. And by um, two weeks, you know, you're getting up to kind of 80% plus. Um and the patients who have real COVID, the kind of classic path is that obviously they have their pre-symptomatic bit, incubation period, and then they are unwell for a week or so, and then they deteriorate and come to hospital. So they're arriving at the hospital door at a point at which the antibody test would be really quite reliable, yeah. but it's not being used. And we have a capacity for 120,000 of those a day. And they're just sat there, not being used. So let me get it right. So you're suggesting um, someone who presents severe symptoms that finds their way into a hospital, that you think antibody testing could be a good diagnostic tool at that point, better than using a PCR? Because surely a PCR test is more effective when the high, when there are high viral loads, therefore there's less amplification required. Are you saying that? One is so the real, the real problem on the front line with PCR, the real problem is the delay getting a result. Right. And the lateral flow tests and the antibody tests are bedside tests. You can do it within half an ah, hour. Right. Okay. Um, and so, and and that also has a huge impact on bed management. You see, because the problem, the major problem we have in hospitals at the moment, is one of flow through the hospital. So normally it's a tricky job trying to get people into beds on the wards. And the only things that restrict you doing that are that some patients have infections and need to be in a side room. And you have to have male and female bays. And you might want to try and keep surgical patients with surgical nurses and medical patients with medical nurses. And that's about it. Now you've got that, but you've also got some patients who are COVID positive and have to be kept on COVID wards. Patients who are suspicious haven't got their results yet, but you can't put them with the COVID positives because they might catch it. And you can't put them with the negatives because they might spread it. And then you've got the COVID negative patients. So you've got to try and keep all of those people separate. And when that happens, you can't use the beds efficiently. And, you know, we, we normally work so close to being full all the time we don't have slack in the system so when you don't have that ability to use the beds efficiently you get a backlog in A&E of patients that can't get admitted onto the wards and that makes it feel like a hospital that's being over overwhelmed and then you get the ambulance is not able to drop the patients off because there's a backlog in A&E and so then the ambulances aren't free to be going and doing the ambulance run. So people are calling repeatedly saying, well, where's my ambulance? You know, so that all of these things kind of can happen as a result of 
small changes in the system, actually. Also, obviously, at a time of year when the NHS is always under pressure. And we had last winter was actually not such a bad influenza year. So, you know, the, the normally not bad years fo are followed by bad years. So we can expect this winter to be... Actually, I guess the debate's out because of all the COVID deaths, but yeah. influenza might be bad this year. And we've got full hospitals because it's December, but then we've got all of these other problems on top. Plus, we have no staff. I mean, this is just the absolute tragedy of the PCR testing is the fact that it's been done on staff and they've been made to sit there perfectly well people made to isolate for two weeks. And the consequences of that are people not getting healthcare that they need. I mean, there's no, there's no other way. You can see that in, either the healthcare doesn't work or we've taken it away and people are going to die. And if you don't staff your ambulances and your A&Es and your, you know, your, your hospitals, and they're really not staffing. And there's talk of some hospitals that are a bit half, they're running at half their staff at the moment. It's ridiculous. I know. So so what, what you're talking about there is not necessarily a function of bed stock like we don't we just literally don't have enough space and enough beds to accommodate the level of sickness the unprecedented acute sickness sickness that we're seeing instead what um was my hunch based on being very close to the data i, I kind of pull the sit reps as often as i can weekly across the nhs across um you know the acute beds the um the icu beds etc and the numbers are uh, if you compare them to 2019, they're, they're, they're normal or sub-normal sub, uh, levels. But when you take the, the stats of how many beds are available this year, there's less available by, by some margin. And I suspect that's down to COVID wards, social distancing wards. As you say, the flow means that space isn't as efficiently or densely packed as we once would be able to. Then you layer on the staff absences. Um, and you can see a real issue manifesting much of our own doing from a policy perspective. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the good news is that there are some hospitals who have figured out what's going on and have refusing to use the testing. So they're using lateral flow tests for their staff rather than PCR so that this doesn't happen. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, as soon as some start doing that, hopefully they can, the others will have the confidence to do that too. But I guess even, even with the things you and I have just said, um, pressure is still pressure, right? If you, if you, you know, remove some of the beds, if you remove some of the people, if you then make the process more tricky to manage, the pressure, the, the net, the net uh, result is that there is increased pressure, right? On the people and on the system, because we've changed the, you know, the inputs and outputs. So, is it is it right to still be panicked um, as a country, considering we are struggling to deliver the service with the constraints that we have? Yeah, absolutely, it is. I mean, I would I would hate to be working on the front line at the moment. It must be absolutely hellish, and you know, to, because on top of everything we've described, there's a whole load of fear. There's all the kind of PPE that they're having to deal with, and and there's I think there's a lot of confusion as well about what on earth's going on. Um, and that all of that adds to the mix. But yeah, as a, you know, as a citizen, when that happens to your health service, yeah, there's every reason to be worried. Um, and I, I would be very surprised if we don't see excess deaths as a consequence of all of this.
Let, let me ask you this question as a, as a kind of hypothesis. It's not going to happen, but what about if you could click your fingers now and everything we've just described, you know, the staff absences, which are self-isolating without symptoms, uh, returning the bedstock to the 2019 levels, um, taking all the process away, all the paperwork, all the extra steps. If we if we clicked our, our fingers and returned to, you know, 2019 operation, do you think we still would be having a problem? Um, I, I do think that there would still be some hospitals turning patients away, probably, because that happens in winter, in always, every winter. But that, you know, there are systems in place that deal with that. And actually, to be honest, that might not even happen because at the moment, the numbers do not make it look that busy. It might happen at some point in the winter. Um, but the thing is, we can't click our fingers. I mean, that's the thing, that's the thing that's so tricky about this is find, trying to find a pathway out. And testing stuff with lateral flow is a start. Um, obviously, hospitals that have made that decision really have a responsibility to start questioning how they're testing their patients. You know, if they don't trust it for their staff, why are they using it for their patients? Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, what else What else have we got to talk about regarding the hospital surgery? Because I think you know, right here, right now, you know, we are recording, you know, the day before New Year's Eve and there is panic stations. You know, I seldom read the news, but I flicked on it just before we turned the mics on just to see if there's anything going on. And I'm hearing of yet more kind of tier upgrades uh, for our country. I'm hearing about a hospital surge, which is, you know, causing quote unquote incidents uh, around the country in Essex and so forth. Uh, there is definitely a lot of panic being driven through the media in the last couple of days, as you would anticipate, um, just, of course, as the, the the new vaccine has been approved. So part of the, you know, the cynic in me says, I, I kind of see the, the narrative play out and it, it kind of feels predetermined. That said, this hospital surge thing, I think, is the thing that will, everyone will cling to right now who are saying, you were wrong, Steve. You were wrong, Claire, to be uh, cavalier or not as cautious as everyone else or suggesting things shouldn't be as um, restricted as everyone else is supporting. You are wrong because take a look at the stats, take a look at the cases, take a look at the hospitalizations, take a look at the burden at the hospitals. So my question then is, as, as we as we kind of think about the hospital burden, obviously everything manifests from the cases, right? If we produce lots of cases, some of which or many of which are not real diseased individuals, uh, but that then pollutes the downstream numbers, hospitalizations and deaths. How much of what I've just said is is a real problem that we're facing in the hospitals? Or do we or do you think that actually who's presenting to the hospital are genuine COVID diseased hospitalizations? Um, I'm pretty convinced that a lot of what's happening in hospitals is misdiagnosis. But that doesn't mean there isn't some real COVID out there. And it's, you know, it's really quite impossible to say what proportion it is while we've got testing as it is. And it would be very, very simple to do some decent testing with your lateral flow and antibody testing and get the answer. But nobody's doing it, which I just find really odd. But, you know, that just doesn't seem to have happened, that experiment anywhere in the world even. Actually, that's not true. They did do it in Spain. Um, and they found half of their ITU patients in Spain were, did, had no antibodies to it. 
Even though so, they've got severe expression, which would usually come with an antibody response there and then, right? After, yeah, 17 yeah, days of sick, a disease, you'd expect you to see You can't get it. more sick than being on ITU. Yeah. But there are, you know, once you're on ITU, you've got organ failure of one type or another or multiple. And there are myriad causes of that. And because of what we were saying before, that the list of symptoms caused by COVID is defined by who tested positive by COVID. It's it's very, very hard to, for people not to be convinced that everybody in front of them who's tested positive hasn't got it. Because, you know, so, oh, this is one of the ones that presents like a heart attack. And this is one that presents like a stroke. And this one presents like GI symptoms. You're like, well, that sounds to me like of just general people coming through a hospital door testing positive. So we could, if there was motivation, we could get closer to answering that question, right? If we could open the door on this, do an independent audit, bring in the people that, you know, have you know the right testing or the, a multitude of different tests, you know, if we wanted to, um, without placing pressure on the NHS, albeit I think it would irrespective, if we could find an independent organisation that could scale up quick enough you know, whether it be, you know, our favourites like a Serco or a Deloitte that we seem to be part, passing lots of money to this year and have them walk the halls of um, all, all the wards of all the hospitals and deploy some tests independent of the NHS staff, antibody testing, lateral flow testing in these sick individuals. I mean, we could, we could, we could answer that question, couldn't we, in a pretty short period of time? Yeah, we could, but except that you can't do that, can you? You can't just go into a hospital and start testing people. No, no, the government would need to, and the NHS would need to support the initiative. But there's nothing to suggest it couldn't be done, right? You know. No, absolutely not. We've got, you know, we've got all, we've got thousands and thousands of these tests, and you know, tens of thousands of actual flow tests are being used on asymptomatic people every day. (laughs) So why don't we use someone, somebody who's got some symptoms, and see what they show? I think that's, it's a really important point, Claire, because there's, you know, the sceptic in you can only be sceptical whilst the evidence leaves that window for questioning. If you can close down sceptical questions, you make people more certain. And I've always thought throughout this year, you know, I've got these questions that are unanswered or seemingly unanswerable. If you can answer them, if you can address them, I'll shut up. I'll stop talking about something that is a hypothesis yeah. that you've, you've, proven to be false but instead i'm allowed to keep making these hypotheses and these claims and no one can justifiably refute them and yeah. that's the kind of the back and forth we keep going through on this and it's it's most concerning but i'm thinking about how else is there any other kind of triage data claire that kind of helps express whether there you know if there is some mischaracterization occurring and I'm kind of leading a witness a little bit here, but I know you recently um, spoke about the NHS 111 triages mm-hmm. um, of influenza-like or COVID-like illness. Um, and there's, some, there's something in that pattern that may suggest that we're, you know, there's some case pollution occurring with our reporting. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Absolutely. So, I mean, this is what I was kind of alluding to when I was talking about looking at the data from every angle. And you know what? This country is fantastic at data transparency. We really, really are world leading on it. And and that has continued throughout the pandemic. And actually, 
they're still they're still publishing more and more new sources of data. So I mean that aspect of it is just completely to be praised, and it's the only reason that we can start trying to hold them to account is because that what happened. Um, and it means that the UK has to be the one that leads the world out of this because other countries just don't have access to this data. Mm. But anyway, coming back to the data. So the the kind of measure that you'd like to see is, well, how many people out there feel like they might be sick with COVID? You know, that's an interesting question. And that gets measured in two ways. So the thing you alluded to is that the NHS published data on people phoning 111 saying that they have whatever symptoms and then 111 code those calls. So this is a decision by 111 about whether or not it sounded like it could be COVID. And there was a massive spike in the spring of people who thought they had COVID because they probably did. And then it fell the uh, end of May and plateaued through the summer. And then we did have a little autumn blip, a little blip of people who thought they had symptoms at the point when the PCR test positive rate also turned a corner. So there was a point in time when it looked like something bad was about to happen. But the symptoms peaked on the 15th of September and came back down to that sort of baseline level. Um, and the other symptom measure is the Zoe symptom tracker data, which also had a massive thing going in the spring, also plattered in the summer and matched that little peak in September. And then it came down to a sort of higher baseline for winter, which you think, well, you know, winter, yeah, coughs, fevers, that sort of figures. But it came shooting up before Christmas on the Zoe app one, um, which was, a, you know, a bit odd, but then plummeted. So I have a feeling people who might have been abusing the Zoe app a little bit to get tests done before seeing granny. But anyway, I don't know that for sure. That's just speculation. So anyway, we see we have those measures of symptoms. And then you can also sort of go through, well, what happens next? So what about 999 calls? And we don't have data for the whole country for 999 calls, but we, we have a representative data set, which includes uh, London and, and the Southeast, which are meant to be going haywire at the moment. And again, there's a spring peak, there's a summer plateau, there's a little September blip, but then it's back to baseline. Um, there's a, maybe a slight creep upwards, nothing like September. So it has gone up a bit, but you maybe expect that at the point in winter when you know the NHS is under its most pressure. Um, then you have people coming to A&E. And the, the most ridiculous measure on that is people coming to A&E with an acute respiratory infection code. That includes all of the COVID-like people. And that had a spring spike. After the spring spike, it went below normal levels. Because remember, we we're telling people with coughs not to come to hospital. Yeah. Um, but we had a September spike. But actually, that turned out to be children with bronchitis and bronchiolitis, you know, back to school, beginning of term, and the children get a cough. So they were coded by the doctors in A&E as not being COVID, even though one, one thought it might be and the, the you know, nine and nine thought it might be. When they got to the doctors, they're like, nah, it's just bronchitis and bronchitis. We see it every year. Um, and then it goes back down and then it just keeps falling. So there's now a huge under, like the, the number of people turning up with an acute respiratory infection is way below normal levels at the moment, which is a story you don't hear very often. 
then having that's crazy no sorry carry on (laughs) okay so having got through a and e another measure would be well did the doctors think this person could have covid and then notified them to the public health authorities so doctors have a statutory obligation to notify um infectious diseases and then the obligation is to report them before testing the idea is that you report at the first suspicion and the system broke for COVID, to be honest, because the numbers that were reported is just a fraction of what's out there. And I can kind of see how it could break because, yeah. you know, doctors think, well, the public health authorities are already centrally in charge of this diagnosis. Why would I get involved in telling them what they're telling me? Um, but nevertheless, some doctors did report it. And so there was a spring spike. And then again, there is this little autumn spike. and um, But then it goes back to baseline. And, and, you know, that's, that's where we're at, is this kind of same baseline as summer. Um, and then sort of what else could we measure? You can measure. So then, you know, having diagnosed or having kind of admitted all these positive patients through the door, you say, well, how full are the hospitals? How full are the ITUs? Are there excess deaths? And all of these things, just, you know, it, none of them fit with this hypothesis that the PCR tests are telling us something real. And what do you think about um, just the general seasonality of respiratory viruses? Now, I know there isn't a ton of papers on this. I found a couple. I actually wrote about it a couple of months ago. But there's uh, they've done some work in France. They've done some work in China where they um, tried to characterize the the kind of peaks and valleys of various common respiratory viruses like RSV, uh, influenzas, coronaviruses, etc., adenovirus. And um, it's quite interesting because there's there's this kind of shape that that happens there. There's there's some kind of hump where there's a culmination, predominantly from coronavirus. Uh, no, sorry, yeah, coronavirus and RSV in the kind of October time frame. And then things mellow out in November, and then in December, January, February, things kind of, they all kind of resurge in one big hit. Mm. You find everything mm. just kind of like explodes um, where they, they then start dropping around about February. Um, influenza peaking towards the back end of that process. So you look at that and you go, okay, well, if if I had nothing, no further evidence or information, I'd say, okay, well, maybe that's a pattern. And we see that, right? We see kids going back to school in September and I'm getting lots of colds, common colds, probably attributed to RSV. And I know our infection uh, surveillance work kind of indicated that if you kind of follow that weekly report. So why are we, I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but why are we not attempting to not only test for coronavirus, but understand if someone is representing some kind of ILI that we're not trying to understand which of it is affecting them? And, you know, is it influenza? Is it parainfluenza? Is it RSV? Is it coronavirus or a variety of coronaviruses? Do, do you think we could do that? Or is that unrealistic to expect that that level of surveillance? Um, so, I mean, we never have done that, right? So these these diagnoses in the past have been we, not things that we've particularly chased down. So we do, the GPs, a sample of GPs, provide data for um, influenza reporting. So when they have patients that could be, they'll get them tested. But we don't normally try to diagnose it. You know, once you've got somebody who's got a respiratory infection and they come to hospital, we assume it's a respiratory infection and then we treat them 
for with what they need without hunting down the exact cause um and so we don't really have the systems in place and the testing capacity to be able to hunt down the exact cause in all the patients that will have a respiratory disease in the winter and it hasn't been necessary to do that you know i think the way we worked was okay just calling every, everything <clears throat> ili was was sufficient yeah um i mean what's interesting of course <laughs> is that we didn't isolate them all from each other you know if you had a different respiratory infective cause you'd still be on the open ward oh you would right so there there isn't there wasn't that kind of wards for ili patients previously uh, there may have been some places. I'm probably speaking out of turn, but um, but no, not in the same way there is for COVID. Anyway, yeah. not with the same drama. Yeah, it's it's yeah. <laughs> the more questions, the the more unanswered answers we get. Uh, more mm. head scratching. Um, talk to me a little bit about this super variant, um, the lineage B one one seven. So, you know, for our our listeners, um, you know this 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 speak of a new variant. Uh, a new set of mutations uh, that is more transmissible, transmissible and potentially more of everything, uh, you know, virulent, etc., cetera, um, has been, you know, shoved down our throats in the last month. And uh, it's all come from the UK, come from, you know, um, the COG UK initiative of bringing Lighthouse Lab genomic sequencing together to see if we can find both mutations and if there are dominant variants. So I've written about this just a little um, pulled together some resources. But what are your thoughts on this? And maybe the first question is, and this is, you know, tin hat, tin foil hat type question, so not meant to be, but are you confident, Claire, that the work earlier in the year, in January, to fully isolate SARS-CoV-2 and therefore fully sequence it, so we have a full kind of signature of that virus, do you believe that that work has been done and it is... Uh, irrefutable as a result therefore we can do genomic sequencing noticing we've got the full picture of what this virus is i do i think there was a virus a new virus i think the um we've done lots of work on real patients done by public health england as well as others where um swabs from real patients have been used to infect cells in culture and they replicate and they explode the cells and we've managed to do a whole genome sequencing of it, which is where you read every single letter of the nucleic acids. So you read the whole recipe for the virus. And, you know, I think that we have got enough reads of whole genome sequencing that's really covering the whole genome of COVID and it's repeatedly the same. Without, without human elements to it as well, right? We're confident that is like a fully isolated genomic sequence yeah i yeah. am okay i think yeah i think it's real um the the thing is whole genome sequencing is a new test and it's been used in medicine for you know a few years and it's been used as a um way of getting additional information so a patient where you already know what's going on in terms of diagnosis but you'd like extra information about anything else you can find then you might get a whole genome um, but it's being used now as a quantitative test to say whether or not somebody has a diagnosis. And it's being used 
for mass population screening, well, not as a primary test, but for confirmation. And when you have testing that's being used in that way, you have to be really careful and you have to understand how and how often it can go wrong. And you can only understand that by really stress testing it and almost trying to make it go wrong. You know, you sort of stop and you think, well, how can we, how could we be mistaken? And that work really hasn't been done. And they're just slowly starting to do a bit of work around that. Um, but I've, I fear that on whole genome sequence reports where we shouldn't have been confident that it was definitely there, it will have been reported as being definitely there. Um, and the, the thing with the UK is that actually, thanks to things like the 100,000 Genomes Project, we have um, amazing capacity for genome sequencing. So we have done a lot more of it than other countries. So it's not surprising that we'd be the ones talking about finding variants because we're looking for them more. But what we found with this particular variant is that it's been around since September and it's just been kind of gradually, slowly pootling away, maybe increasing a little bit. And then in mid-November, it went from that gradual pootle to something much, much more dramatic. Um, and looking at that dramatic change in the proportion of cases, apparently with this variant, looks to me like a laboratory error. You know, when you see things that suddenly change and suddenly do something uh, very dramatic, your first response shouldn't be to go and run in a hole and panic everybody that we're all going to die. The first re rational response to that is to think something's gone wrong and to see what could have gone wrong. And my first thought about what could have gone wrong that would make the Southeast, the East Midlands and London have a sudden increase in this variant is that somebody in the lab may have been shedding RNA over the samples. And I'd said this in a speculative way, but then of course we found out the 24th of December that there'd been an outbreak in the Milton Keynes lab and 20 out of 70 of the staff are off now. Um, so I'm not sure that was such a crazy suggestion. I think that is what may have happened there. And it's not until you know, things settle down, give it a couple more weeks, we'll find out whether that was the case because there won't suddenly be quite as many of these variants as they apparently were. That's a very interesting hypothesis. I, I did see you state that on Twitter. I mean, I guess the 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 counter argument would be okay, it was it was moving slowly from at least, you know, you know, the samples that we took. Uh, it wasn't as prevalent in September and October, November, into December, things start to pick up someone would say, well, that's just, you know, that's an exponential curve. That's, you know, that's the quote unquote, the R number, you know, doing its work as it's working through the population. Yeah. What do you say to that? Well, I just, I don't buy that it appears everywhere at the same time. So the, at the same, I don't know quite the sort of rationale behind this in terms of which lab is doing the testing. But the other thing that happened in mid-November was that this new variant appeared in every pocket, like every corner of Wales, which, you know, Wales is not a country that people visit every corner of very often. Mm. <laughs> and, and for it to all emerge on the same day across Wales just looks like an, a reporting error. Like that just, that's not how infectious diseases spread. Okay. 
Okay. And you know, the error could be, as you say, could be contamination, but it could be a change in process as well, right? Potentially that, um, you know, something to do with the sequence in, I, I don't really know how genomes yeah, no, it works, so, but I, mean, I guess so there could be updates in the AI and the kind of testing process and, uh, you know, because a lot of this is mathematical, isn't it? Sequencing. Yes. And so one of the problems that we now have is that because they've diagnosed this new variant, they're saying that the tests that did require three genes to be positive on PCR now should only require two because the third one might not go positive with this new variant. So suddenly the criteria for testing has changed to make it way more easy to get a positive. No way. So, you know, that's happened, guess when, you know, just before we've suddenly seen this massive uptick in the number of cases. Um, yeah, when you say and, testing, I mean, you're talking about PCR testing? I am, yeah. Right, I okay. Am. So there's less, is it primers or, or, or probes? There's, there's less nucleic acids to test for. They only test for two instead of um, three. Is that what you're saying? That's, yeah, that's essentially it. So effectively, if, you, if you're if you testing for three genes, it's almost like doing three different tests. So if you had, say, a 5% positive rate, a false positive rate for one gene, but you're testing for two, then you have 5% of 5% as your false positive rate. You test for three, you have 5% of 5% of 5%. You know, the more times yeah. you test, as long as you require all of them to be positive, for you to say that it's a positive test. But if you then remove one of your tests, then you've just multiplied that up by 5%. You, you know, wow. you've, you're going um, backwards. And now we're seeing huge numbers, right? You know, 50 odd thousand uh, reported cases, you know, the highest we've ever seen, um, making making uh, spring just look like a nothing <laughs> in comparison to what we're seeing yeah. now. Now yeah. I know that, the, you know, this, the, the response will be, but we were doing selective, targeted testing without the capacity and without the wider community approach we're now you know scaling our testing regime uh, and it's the scaling of it that's you know finding the true you know the true prevalence that we weren't able to identify previously i don't really buy that to be honest but i, mean, I think that was true thoughts? that was true in may so in may we you know in april we didn't have we didn't have sufficient we don't think we had any real community testing outside of care homes so in 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 April, we were not seeing the true number of cases. By May, we started to do quite a lot of testing. And like by June, we had um, 100,000 tests a day. That's tons. So, you know, I don't think that argument could be used subsequently. That that, that was an argument for them. Yeah. Um, But on the 50,000 cases a day, that's registered cases. If you look at the cases by specimen date, it was very much a pre-Christmas peak. And it's turned and it's coming down. And I think there were a lot of people who went and got tested before seeing Granny for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying they should have seen Granny for Christmas. Just I think that's what may have happened. <laughs> mm. Just as we kind of move off of this variant thing, is there any anything else you want to add? I mean, from my perspective, in my 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 research of this, that you know, mutations are very frequent uh, and to be expected. Um, that I know there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of reported mutations on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And there are thousands upon thousands of identified variants and many lineages. So it's not surprising that we're talking about a variant. Um, it's, it's easy it's easy science to kind of cherry pick from to create a straw man that we have an issue. However, 
Um, in your point, in, in your from your perspective, do you think it's fair and it's right and it's appropriate to be talking about, uh, you know, the variants of the virus? Uh, is this a red herring or is it viable that we pay attention to the phenotypes of these variants that we're identifying and coding? I think we should be paying attention to phenotypes, but I think this is a total red herring. So I think you're right. There's been tens of thousands of variants and it, you know, they'll continue to be. And the wonderful thing about deadly viruses is they, they always get less deadly. That's just that's how things evolve. They become more spready and less deadly over time. That's historically what viruses do. And there's so many people working so hard to try and find any evidence that this is more transmissible or more deadly or less deadly. You know, there's tons of people working on that. So don't worry, we'll know if it ever has any effect. Thus far, no evidence. Yeah, I wonder how long this uh, this variant discussion is going to go on for. Um, I feel it was just, uh, it, was a, it, was, it was the criterion which governments could say, look, you know, our hands are tied, we have to do something, we have to do something new, yeah. we're gonna have to lock you down. And then once we've got something else that we can blame or, or something else that we can praise that we'll forget about the variant discussion. And I suspect we're going to probably see that in, in, in the coming weeks, um, especially as there's, you know, this further push on, on the vaccines. Um, talking about the testing stuff. We've spoken about you've mentioned PCR testing, lateral flow testing, um, I know, you know, case definition is driven only by PCR testing, uh, confirmed cases, that is. So PCR is kind of held up as the gold standard. And I think anyone who started to become familiar understands it's an amplification test and it was never designed to be a diagnostic test, but uh, in the right hands, it's very useful. The problem is it's how you derive meaning from the result, right? And what it's mm. testing for is small fragments uh, of RNA, and that doesn't really express either disease or even a live viable virus. And we need to make a lot of inferences uh, with the results. And then on top of that, we've got handling error and false positive error. error. It's, it's, it's quite a problematic test in the capacity in which we're using it. What can you, you know, what other color can you add to what I've just said, whether it be, you know, everyone keeps talking about the CT threshold or the limit of detection and how that's been set um, opaquely across the country and across all the labs. Like, What needs to happen for us to get a bit more confidence in this test and that it is viable and appropriate? So uh, the thing about PCR testing is that the medical profession has enormous faith in it because hypothetically it's very specific and it's really, really difficult to understand how it can go wrong as in a sort of narrative about how it went wrong. And it doesn't mean that it hasn't gone horribly wrong in the past. And when it's gone horribly wrong in the past, in like a similar situation to this, creating pseudo-epidemics, people never totally get a handle on why it happened. And they don't, and you know, because we don't sort of have an explanation of exactly how this incredibly specific test stopped giving us the right answer, people sort of forget that it happened. They don't like it, that it doesn't fit into their worldview of how specific PCR testing is, which is a massive problem, I think. Um, <clears throat> and it's a complicated test to get right, which is why it doesn't work at an industrial scale. And you have to be incredibly careful and skilled to do it. So <coughs> I wouldn't say that I'm particularly skilled at doing it. Um, and people that are, 
are very protective in their labs of you know their solutions and their lab space because it can go get messed up so easily um and one of the things that has worried me more recently about how it could have gone wrong recently is that in addition to all the problems that we have through the summer in september we started doing pooled testing and this is where samples would arrive as individual samples in the lab and then instead of each being pipetted into a separate well for testing, a group would all be pipetted into the same well. So you've got samples from multiple patients in one well. And they, they did this to sort of amplify up the number of tests that could be tested. But the, the problem with it, of course, is that if you have a positive among that group, um, it's been diluted. So they were very worried that they would miss some. And all the discussion around this is pooling has been how we don't let pooling lead to false negative results. Um, nobody's really thought about how if you're you know, getting samples all into one well and opening them all up with each other repeatedly, you're also risking false positive results. But one of the other things that is a worry is that when you have done the test and the RNA has been amplified or turned into DNA and then amplified and then the fluorescence has come out in proportion to how much COVID was there in theory. You get a readout for each sample, which is essentially a graph that shows you the fluorescence over time. And it should rise exponentially as all of the DNAs doubled and then hit the threshold that you're referring to. But the thing about the threshold that needs to hit is that it's not a constant answer like someone has to decide where it should be for that particular run and it's obvious that it needs to be above the level of fluorescence in the negative control and it needs to be below the level of fluorescence from your positive control but deciding exactly where between the two is a decision that's taken based on looking at the readouts from the plate so you see what how the results behaved and if you see something that looks in terms of its trajectory with its exponential growth and you know rising over time to um then you think well that one looks like it's real so we've got to make sure our threshold is low enough that that one looks like a positive but you know you might see some that are sort of going in a bit of a linear fashion you think well we'll make sure it's high enough that those ones don't count and that's not being done by skilled people it's being done by artificial intelligence so a company called eugentech was contracted to do this for all the lighthouse labs and they have software that makes that decision. And I don't think it's been questioned enough. And I'm not sure how much manual audit of it is going on. Um, and my concern is that when you introduce pooled samples, if you have some pooled samples that had a real positive in it, then that's going to be diluted. Then that threshold is going to be brought right down to capture it because it was real, but diluted. And once you brought it right down, it's going to capture a whole load of the samples in that plate that were individual. I didn't realise we were doing pooling for general population. I thought it was more like universities and places like that. Yeah, so Cambridge University have been doing it throughout. Cambridge University have done great testing on it, actually. So they've done pool testing with swabs where they've literally the pooling happens not in the lab it happens with the person collecting all the swabs yeah, the and dog. then yeah. yeah and then they test them 
and then they, uh, you know, they're not false positive deniers. So if there's a positive, then they go back and they retest yeah. more. And they've, you know, they've just not had a problem at Cambridge University because really, they've done it really well. Um, but you know, that, that's the pool testing that we've been doing since September has been in the lighthouse labs. And I, but I, they haven't told us much about it. I don't know how, what kind of numbers, but I'm just worried that having started to do that, we may have created a more of a false positive problem for all the other cases going through. And what about this this CT this this cycle threshold? Um, I I think the layman or the people that have some information but not full information may misunderstand what this is. And I'm going to attempt to describe what I understand it to be, mm-hmm. uh, only so that you can correct uh, naivety being perpetuated if that is. In, 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 in actual fact what I'm doing. But my understanding, uh, having spoken to a microbiologist doing this day in, day out, is that the, the, the machine runs until such a point that it, it meets a certain uh, fluorescence, a certain v- value. Um, if it gets to that point and it produces it, if it gets to that point or under and it produces the kind of value it needs, it produces a result and it says the CT or the, the, the cycles used was X, 30 to 32, whatever it was. But if it gets to say a CT of 35, then at which point, if it's still negative, then it will be deemed negative. They won't then continue the amplification process beyond 35 cycles to see if they can produce a positive at say 40. So that this limit of detection um, or the CT level is kind of the max in which a negative can be found and positives can be found at any amplification under that. Is that the correct representation of what this CT value is? Because people talk about, you know, the NHS standard operate procedures using 45 cycles, mm-hmm. and then we don't have any number really coming from the labs because the answer is, hey, they use different machines, different people, different process, different enzymes, and therefore there isn't a blanket you know, threshold that we can apply to all of these machines, which creates a lot of cynicism because it feels like we can manipulate the results. Like help mm. kind of clear out that muddy water that I've just put out there. No, I think I think your summary's fair. I think so I think the thing that people often get confused about is this idea that we have protocols saying do 45 cycles. And there's nothing wrong with doing 45 cycles. That means you put it on the machine and you've done the temperature drops and rises 45 times to get each set of amplification going but that how you how you far you take it on the machine doesn't matter what matters is how you interpret the readout on the graph so the readout on the graph is how much fluorescent and how it developed over time and what also matters is where you put the threshold that you're trying to hit and so you you'll see the line you'll see where it hits the threshold and then you'll see how many cycles it took to get there and then decide whether or not that was a, a number of cycles that is acceptable in your lab for saying it's a real thing as opposed to something to ignore. So, you know, you can run it for 45 cycles on the machine, but then have a sensible cutoff for how many cycles you'll report. And that's perfectly acceptable as long as you're using a sensible threshold. Do you think this has been abused or do you think it's been, you think for the most part, it's being used appropriately? this this uh so i think process. i think the thing that's been missing is that the laboratories need to be doing um quality control checks on with a view 
to seeing if they could be having false positives. Now, a lot of quality control checks have been done answering the false negative question. And there will have been quality control checks to try and address the false positive question as well. But we need serious, serious, difficult tests to do this because it's really, really important. And from the outset, what should have happened is having viral culture on the sample alongside so that you can understand whether or not your test is producing valid results. Mm. And viral culture testing is difficult to do. And there's only a few labs that can do it because you need to have kind of extra safety equipment to be able to do it. Um, but it's not impossible to do. And, you know, there, there's a responsibility to be doing that. And even if that was done in the spring um, and not reported, you know, it's possible that they did it in the spring. It needs to be done repeatedly because things change over time and you need to be checking that the results we're producing now are valid, especially given everything else we've said in this discussion. You know, there is a very big question about whether that's the case. And so you have to check it. Now, if you think viral culture is too difficult, fine. There are other ways of checking. You can do antibody testing. That's all you have to do. You take a sample of your positives and you see how many of them develop antibodies. And then you know. Yes, it's probably not a, a point in time test that you know that you would have to do some kind of some kind of um, delayed testing regime for those those individuals, right? You'd be following that individual. Absolutely, and I think you know that the labs are big centralized labs that are sort of too far away from the patient for that to happen easily. But it's the kind of work that Public Health England could take responsibility for, or NHS England even. They absolutely could do that work. It's not that hard to do. It doesn't have to be done on everyone. It has to be done on a sample so that you understand what's going on. And seeing as we have 120,000 antibody tests a day, that capacity that's not being used, you know, there's capacity to do it. Yeah. And what do you think about, you know, you know the narrative around false positives is is rife right um and you know i think we've all uh, all participated in you know throwing some concern around how much of the results are are genuine meaningful results um now i i think the purists or or, or those that want to have an argument uh, a counter argument will say the false positive rates are minuscule and they'll they'll they'll, they'll cite some ons um, observations, or they'll they'll talk about, you know, the, the rates of cases that we saw in in the summer, and say, well, then therefore the the false positive rate must match as a maximum the number of cases that we saw at the minimum of our testing regime. So you come up with a few arguments that are sensible in nature, at least uh, at the outset, to say, come on, like let's be let's be real here. The false positive rate of the test itself has to be relatively low. Um, now I know there's counter in terms of prevalence and viral load, and then you know what are we testing for? Is it viable virus? You know, is it post-infection viral fragments? All that kind of stuff. I know there's many responses, but as you kind of think through, you know, in percentage terms, how much of what we're currently producing in the in the winter in December could be marked up as some some way, shape, or form? a meaning, meaningless result. Would you be willing to hazard a, a guess and put, put a number on it to some degree? Hmm. 
it's a big number. I, I, it's, you know, I don't know what percentage it would be. And there are some days when I think it's higher than others, depending on what other data I'm looking at. Um, but, you know, and, and, and it's hard to unpick because we're not doing the kind of work you need to do to unpick it properly. But I think this is not a small problem we've got. And, you know, I alluded to it earlier, but it's important to understand that this has happened before and that when it's happened before, people have said, we must never, ever, ever let this happen again because it's such a disaster. And the last big time it happened before was with swine flu, where there was this second wave and where um, the proportion of flu samples that were being assigned as H1N1 strain was going up and up and up and up until it reached 60% of the samples. And people kind of carefully unpicked it, carefully showed how it got to this ridiculous situation where there were um, more and more and more patients dying as a proportion of cases, but fewer and fewer being admitted as a proportion of cases. So more deadly, but less severe. And they only stopped when they stopped the testing. And it has happened on a smaller scale before in like particular hospitals with particular diseases. And, you know, people just, it, it took a long time in those scenarios for people to get their head around what happened. The, the classic one that I often refer to was a Dartmouth hospital in New Hampshire, where they had a pertussis outbreak of whooping cough, but there wasn't actually any pertussis or whooping cough in that outbreak on culture. The whole thing was driven by PCR. So they had a a 15% positivity rate on testing, but 100% of those positives were false positives. And they speculated about why that might have been. Was there something on the bench top, which there had been some other pseudo epidemic? Was it something about the amplifications going wrong? And they never really know why it happened. And it shouldn't have happened. And that's the problem is that this sort of it shouldn't happen feeling gives doctors a huge amount of faith that it can't happen, even though it has happened in the past. And we as, you know, the layperson, the average Joe, doesn't even know what you're talking about. Like, you know, doesn't hasn't hasn't heard of this swine flu issue. Uh, it wasn't really on anyone's radar. Um, and, and as much as the swine flu thing, you know, was featured in the news, no one was talking about testing, no one understood testing, no one understood if there were issues post- um, that situation so um you, you can forgive me or the average person for not being selectively um amnesic we, we just we weren't told that information but you you suspect that there should be greater responsibility from people in healthcare like should most people in healthcare know about you know, these prior issues of pcr testing and that's a really good question. So I think the answer to that is no. And the reason that I can speak confidently about it is because I attended a lecture by a pathologist who was the one that figured it all out for swine flu and did an amazing presentation about how he did that and, and what he was up against trying to prove it as well. Um, and, you know, I don't think many people went to that lecture. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure how widely he got the word out. And I'm not sure he even wrote it up. I can't find anywhere that he wrote it up properly, which is uh, really depressing. Um, but, you know, obviously there are there are smaller references to it in the literature. Um, 
And so, no, I don't think the medical profession are as I don't think pathologists are aware of what where it's gone wrong in the past, particularly, let alone the medical profession, let alone the public. You know, it's not something that's been spoken about enough. And, and that's that's the problem, isn't it? It's there's there's lots of information out there, but if you don't have it, uh, you don't know, and therefore you can't make those assumptions or references. Um, uh, but it's, it's talks like this that can hopefully start to open people's eyes, both medical professionals and the layperson. I want to close on the, on this testing stuff uh, because I, I know I keep badgering you about it, but I think it is so important. Um, these lateral flow tests. Um, some people are saying that the government are falling out of love with them already because they're not producing the result they want. And and of course, they're not part of a confirmed case. So if you read the WHO case definition, you, you can you can do lateral flow testing, but you can only ever be suspected or probable cases. Um, if, you, if you are to be a confirmed case, you need a PCR test as a confirmatory test. Um, so where does this lateral flow test thing fit? Is it, is, it, is it viable or is it just convenient for people like you and I who want to hear that there's less of a problem out there because it produces less of a problem? Like, is it a good test? Is it something we should be relying upon? Um, is it something, you know, the government should be doubling down on or should we just stop testing altogether of wider community testing? Like, what's your thoughts on that? So I think um, this is exactly what happened in swine flu as well. They try to rubbish the antigen testing then. Um, I think it is a very good test. It's not a perfect test. There's no such thing as a perfect test. Um, but it's a very good test, actually way better than I thought it was going to be. I was all ready to rubbish them as well, and especially because I do not think we should be doing mass testing. Um, but when they started to use it, it showed up that it was a really, really good test with a very low false positive rate. Um, and, you know, if you're going to check your false positives with another test, which is what you should do, then that low false positive rate shouldn't be much of a problem because a few days later you'll know whether or not it was real, especially if we were using them primarily and the number of PCR tests we'd be doing would be enough to be handled in the usual NHS labs and would be back to a situation where it'd be done in a reliable way and we'd be, be you know, confident that that was a helpful thing to do. Um, so in the absence of, of binning community testing, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, you would be in favour of pivoting primarily to use of, of lateral flow tests? Um, so, God, I mean, I really, really don't think we should be doing mass population screening. But yeah, I mean, in a pragmatic way, if that's a route in the right direction, then that should be, you know, a, it's a better test to be using in order to try and work our way towards getting out of it. But I mean, like, if you if you take the very low false positive rate it has, it's enough to cause absolute havoc in the schools. And I think that, not that they're going to open the schools anyway, but if they were to open the schools, the plan was to test everybody with lateral flow tests. And the protocols they had were um, meant that if you had a school of, say, a thousand kids and you tested them all on day one, you'd have probably, this is like, um, this is an upper estimate based on the testing done in Liverpool and Merthyr Tidville. Um, but an upper estimate of seven kids coming back, positive out of a thousand false positives. And then those seven kids would have all of their contacts tested every seven days. So then you've got 30 kids in a class, 210 kids per, per positive child, times up by seven to get to your seven days. And you're now testing in the next round over 1,400 kids 
<laughs> and then you get 10 false positives back from that and so on and so on and very quickly get exponential to a stage where every kid's being tested every day. So it's not a very clever way of doing it. I don't think kids need testing. I don't think there's good evidence that kids are a problem with this disease at all. Um, especially yeah, not treated like lepers. I know, it's awful. It's really awful. Um, but the, just to go back to the lateral flow and the evidence from Liverpool and Merthyr Tidville and the university testing and the truckers as well, when when they were waiting to kept in the car park over Christmas with no toilets and no food, just awful what they did to them. Um, anyway, the lateral flow testing has shown a pretty consistent, very low positive rate. And it's been used to say that it's missing cases. So when you look at all those different, the, all the times where it's been done alongside PCR, so that has happened in Liverpool and in Birmingham, then um, in Liverpool, actually, I think it may have happened a bit in Scotland as well. But in Liverpool, they reckoned that um, half of the cases were missed. So as in PCR, half the PCR positives weren't real, right? But they don't see it like that. And they see it as it missed half the cases. It's just when got Berlin, a high false negative. That would be the, the Yeah, narrative. that's what they're excited about. It's the idea that it's missing cases. And when the Birmingham University did this, they seriously suggested that the sensitivity of the lateral flow was only 3% and it missed 97% Jesus. of the cases. Now, the other way of interpreting the data that they had is very, very benign. And it's simply to say that Birmingham PCR testing had a false positive rate of less than 1%. I mean, that's totally respectable. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's the way testing works. Every test has a false positive rate. Less than 1% is fantastic. But they would rather claim that the lateral flow test had a sensitivity of 3% than admit to a less than 1% false positive rate. It's bizarre. Um, but the thing is that whenever you do these things, if they keep coming up with different weight, like completely different data on how bad the lateral flow is, it's because that's not the issue here. The issue is how bad the PCR is. And the problem I have with this lateral flow stuff is that it's being considered as an enablement test. Um, so this idea being that it, it can grant you access to certain services or, or places, whether it be a theatre or a stadium or maybe even a restaurant, you know, they return results relatively quickly and it could be your means to gain access to society. That worries me because I, I, I just don't like that nanny state, that, you know, that surveillance state kind of control, especially when I don't believe it's necessary and appropriate. Uh, but that worries me. But you know, I know these are like pregnancy test type tests. And in theory, you think, well, great. I mean, if I need one of those, then I'll just do it at home every morning in private. And the result will dictate my behavior going into work or what have you. My concern is they won't let you do it privately because they want the data. And as soon as you start, you know, kind of working through it, you know, this isn't about a test for you, for you to be safe and be um, uh, appropriate with your behavior. The test is to be able to feed into the data and to, for the data then to feed into the policies. Do you think I'm right on that or am I a little off in terms of the use yeah. of this test for really kind of data reporting? So, I mean, I do have a lot of sympathy with people who are trying to earn a living and, you know, open up theatres and open up things and, and to have turned to look to lateral flow as a way they might be able to do that because their livelihoods are on the line and, you know, uh, yeah, sure. Try and do what you can to 
to stay alive, to keep it all going. But I, um, I agree with you. I think it's, it's the wrong approach to take. And, but I don't think we're going to get through to people that it's the wrong approach to take until the hysteria goes away. I mean, we are living through mass hysteria and it's really, really frightening. And it's quite frightening to think about how we get out of it. You know, at what point does a hysteria become rational thinking again? Mm. At what point does it become so hysterical that they're willing to do more and more crazy stuff? You know, that's, I just don't know where we're headed. Yeah, and I agree. I agree. I feel that there's there's an, a, an obsessional relationship, you know, with, wherever you are on the spectrum of, you know, buying into the entire narrative, wherever you are, I feel that there is, you know, not just a national, but a global obsession. I know I feel it. Um, and therefore, we're feeding that addiction daily as individuals. I believe leaders are feeding their addiction daily based on that egomaniac kind of psychopathic power. Like you know, they, they, They've got unprecedented power and control over the population right now. And whilst I'm not trying to label every politician as a psychopath, there is, I think, you know, this is unprecedented times. Things that you could never have done before you can do with ease. You can, you know, you can create change that you never could, could create before because you have this relationship with fear and this um, mm. obsession, myopic obsession on this one disease state. So it worries me that both the addictive, obsessional quality of the layperson and also the addictive qualities of those in power that have not been able to assert themselves like this before the addiction is strong and I can't see us getting away from not talking about this and not making it central for quite a while. And I know vaccines may be a, a, an exit strategy or it's at least claimed to be the exit strategy out of this, but you know, how viable, enduring, durable, safe are they? Uh, and how repeated are we going to be hit around the head with the need to take vaccines? I, I, I worry that there's, there's a kind of perpetual pandemic, uh, at, at least what we've seen this year, but uh, I sense it's going to carry on and maybe completely devastate 21 2021's productivity for Gosh. individuals. I mean, do you do you feel that or do you feel that there is there there is an end in sight where people can start to recapture their lives and stop thinking about this and stop making it so central to how they behave and what they do and the you know the rules they need to listen to. Do, do you have any hope around where this is going? I do some days. <laughs> so I think there are, there is optimism in the fact that people are starting to question what the hell's going on and that when people start to question and read around it and start to understand it they don't go back to being deluded you know you can't you it's a one-way street which is helpful um I do think you know we could get easily into a situation where we vaccinated the vulnerable and we're still getting loads of cases and we're still getting a constant plateau of deaths because we're testing everybody through the hospital door um and that will be horrible, won't it? Because then what? Then what? You know, and they'll already have us all locked up. So then what? Because they've got to do more. They've got to do more, despite no proof of any of it helping. So I, I just, I mean, I don't think we're going to get out of this until they stop PCR testing. It's the only way out of it. Now, to also be optimistic, there is a growing number of court cases internationally that are taking governments to court over the PCR testing. So they you know there is an end in sight in that direction. I so don't we know need, how we need, a, scan we need a scandal or a catastrophe 
um, whether it be in the courts or whether it be in the papers, versus a voluntary action by governments to stop this psychological abuse? I mean, do you do, do you see them voluntarily stepping away from what they're currently no, doing? No, I mean, they've, they've signed up to massive, massive contracts, massive in terms of money and also in terms of time costs. It's not easy for them to stop when they've done that. That's the worrying thing, isn't it? It's um, it, uh, you've got to have hope that there is going to be some catastrophe or some scandal because I think the, on, the only change we can see is a change of leadership, and that's mm. probably going to get brought on by some kind of scandal, whether it be a scandal at the WHO or a scandal within individual governments. But something, someone needs to be caught out, you know, with their pants down, like kind of taking advantage of the situation for us to kind of be able to question wholesale some of the things they're doing but until that point i just feel that this whilst i don't want to get into the why nonetheless the motivation to keep this going is strong for the reasons you've said you know the contracts mm. the commitment the you know the, the 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 personal credibility um you know maybe trying to back out of problems maybe, maybe it's trying to back out the psychological fear that you've kind of instilled in people whatever it is there is a number of reasons why getting out of a 500 billion pound plus spend in one fiscal year by just saying, are we going to stop it now? <laughs> it yeah. ain't going to happen, is it? So something, no. something more. No, I mean, I think we may well happened. see governments topple around the world over this because I mean, to be honest, that's what we want to hope for because as you say, that's really the only way out, isn't it? Yeah. I, I'm just not sure. I'm, I, I'm an optimist by heart. But I'm not sure that on their with with their own steam, they'll find a way out of the the mess they've created for us all. But um, hey, let's see. <laughs> let's. Uh, yeah. I don't want to get too prophetic. Let's let's just kind of wrap this up. Uh, wrap a bow around this. In right, maybe you characterizing whether you still believe we have a pandemic. Do we still have a pandemic or an epidemic in the UK? And to the people that would challenge you strongly on that, they would say, we are seeing excess deaths and therefore what else can you attribute those excess deaths to? There is a problem, it's present, and therefore it'd be inappropriate to say we have anything other than a continued pandemic. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? So the pandemic is defined by there being a novel virus or novel disease uh, that kills susceptible people. So you see excess deaths. Um, and that it's spreading around the world. So I think we saw that in spring. I think we did have an epidemic in spring. I think we um, saw the end of that, the sort of end of May, beginning of June. And then with that, we saw that end because we reached herd immunity, because that's what happens when viruses spread and you can slow them but not stop them. What stops them is our immune systems. And then we had this little spike I talked about earlier in September. And so... Um, which, I, to be honest, I wasn't expecting to happen, that little spike. But it kind of makes sense that in um, spring, it's not really coronavirus season. And so the amount of immunity we need as a population to get rid of it is not as high as you need when coronavirus season hits in. Yeah. Because, you know, we just needed a bit of a top up in some places. And the places that needed topping up were the ones that were affected last and had the least excess deaths at the end of the first wave. So we had that top up. And then from then on, we can expect to see endemic COVID every winter. And it could well be that COVID 
will kind of take over the ecological space, as it were, in our nasopharynx that's been occupied by other coronaviruses in the past, um, or even by other other viruses. And I guess we'll find out in the future whether or not that has happened. That's kind of but, moving deck chairs around, right? Versus extra yeah. burden. Yeah, exactly. So it's a kind of idea that, you know, in an ecosystem, you can only have so many predators. Yeah. And it, yeah, um, it's, so it's not extra burden. It'll just become a different different cause of the respiratory illness that that carries off the frail. Um, but then, you know, every winter we have excess deaths. So this whole kind of what is an excess death is interesting because people are seeming to treat it like it's something that should never happen. It's as if it's in excess of what's fair but we have excess deaths every single winter because it's not that it's the measure that's um over a kind of arbitrary baseline that that is not what to expect because we expect them every winter so i don't know quite how they decide the baselines but anyway we do get them every single winter and we have got had them a bit earlier this winter than normal and maybe that's just because of the idea that COVID's taken over that ecological space. Um, but it also could be because not all excess deaths are COVID deaths. So the people that claim that, you know, the spike in excess deaths in spring were all caused by COVID are simply wrong. And we know that they're wrong because there were a whole load of excess heart deaths, excess dementia deaths, excess stroke deaths, so on and so on, that where the doctors who knew that we were all, you know, had a massive epidemic of COVID, didn't think their patient died of COVID in those instances and said that they died of these other things. Um, and the dementia deaths were particularly striking. I think a lot of care home deaths that were not COVID that happened in spring. And the Oxford coroner has investigated excess deaths in Oxford over spring so looked at deaths of, you know, where a postmortem was required because they were unknown um, and needed investigation and reported to sort of say, well, you know, how many of these deaths were COVID deaths that were underdiagnosed because we didn't have enough testing at the time? That was the point of the study. And they found two out of 67. But they also found cases where, despite the fact um, postmortems, coroner's postmortems, you often don't have a great deal of information unless they've been in hospital. So you'll have the, a, the ambulance notes, or you might have a coroner's officer's notes to, to tell you about how they died. And even with that paltry information, they had cases where people had phoned up for help because they were dying from a heart attack or from diabetic ketoacidosis and had been told that they had symptoms, which meant they had to self-isolate and they shouldn't come into hospital. And then they died. So, you know, lockdowns cause death as well. Um, there were the ONS reported on excess deaths and also concluded that there were these excess deaths that were not COVID and yeah. talked about appendicitis deaths, which is just a horrific thought. <coughs> um, and we've seen up to 100 excess deaths at home a day, right through the summer, just persistent excess yeah. deaths at home. Yeah, and, it's, it's a big number. It's, I, think it's, uh, I think we're touching on about 37,000 uh, excess deaths at home that are non-COVID from uh, reporting from, I think it was about March that they started their reporting on this. 37,000 excess I think deaths. It's, I think it's a little bit lower than that, but not much. And um, some of them 
were labelled as COVID, but oh God, I mean they're just labelling everything. With no, COVID, I, I think it, I think it's about that. I, I'll go back because I report okay, this okay. on our on our dashboard weekly. It's, it's there or thereabouts. Maybe it's a, okay. a thousand or so over, but yeah. it's a big so, number. It's thirty plus thousand individuals that have died at home, not with COVID. And yeah. if we deduct that from the overall excess mortality we're seeing in England, which I think is roughly around about sixty or thousand at the moment, we're already down yeah. to half of that number. Then you take away the suicides and self-harm incident uh, cases that are, are going up double this year alone. And then you add in other causes of, you know, miss, you know, misdiagnosis, sorry, um, reduced triage, reduced diagnosis, reduced screening because people aren't getting access to GPs yeah, where no, they can I identify think stuff. That's what's tricky is that some of the excess deaths caused by lockdown, we're not going to see straight away. Like cancer deaths don't appear straight away. They're going to go on and on. Um, but I would I would correct you on the self-harm and suicide stuff simply to say we just don't have the data on it. I can't believe how slow the data is coming out on it. But you know, people are very careful to do inquiries and to be really sure about those. I know, so I know the, the ambulance. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it's an official stat that's persisting, but I know they said, I think they said 22, uh, 22 call-outs per day on average was seen in 2019 for self-harm and suicide attempts. Uh, and that number is now 37 per day so it's roughly it's almost double but i don't know if that's a persistent number or if it's even increased yeah no, that that was true of london ambulances um over a period um and you know i mean there have absolutely been mental health consequences to this i'm not denying that at all um and um and it's important also to understand that some of those excess home deaths will be deaths that have been displaced from hospital um, because people haven't been going to hospital. And, you know, the reasons people haven't been going to hospital are complex. It's not simply, um, well, some of it's fear of catching COVID. Some of it is not being allowed to because you've got a cough or a fever. And the real drop off in A&E attendance happened not at lockdown. It happened when we were told we weren't allowed to go when we had a cough or a fever. Um, and some of it... Um, <clears throat> Oh, I've lost my thread. Sorry. It's, it's, it's all right. <laughs> all right. Well, let, let just, let, let's just close on that one, that point around excess deaths then. So in your opinion, Claire, do you, because I, I report on this as often as ONS report, and, you know, as much as I would not like to see it, I, I you know, I'm honest, and I try and remove my bias the best I can in my reporting. I report on this on one of our dashboards. There is an excess death occurring beyond the five-year average and even beyond the five-year maximums. Um, in this period, the autumn winter period, we are seeing it. Um, the new data is coming out today. I'll check it later today as to where exactly we are now, but I suspect it will still be in excess of what we would see on average. So there is definitely a burden, an extra death burden there than we would have otherwise expected for this time of the year. Does that worry you, that both the, the scale of that kind of excess and the fact it's appearing in the first place? What do you put yeah. it down to? <clears throat> yeah, it was, I mean, so... I remember my my third point, which was simply that you're not allowed to have visitors in hospital. And that sounds really minor, but it's not minor. If you think you might be dying, do you want to leave your spouse and yeah. family and go off into a hospital? Or are you going to stay at home and not get treatment? I mean, that's where we're at. And I don't think that's insignificant at all. Um, um, so, yeah, on your point. So the, um, the other thing to note is that ambulance call outs for chest pain are below baseline. Ambulance call-outs for cardiac arrest are above baseline. Great. 
it's just it's just horrible looking at all of that data and so yeah I absolutely think that we have got excess deaths at the moment that are not all COVID deaths even though we've got massive numbers of COVID deaths because of how the labelling things and and I think we will continue to see it because of what we've done and what our society is doing and it's it's awful what we're doing and it, it we need to stop I and mean, we really really need to stop we also see excess deaths because we're not staffing the hospitals as we said earlier you know that comes with a mortality rate you can't just not have staff in hospitals and in ambulances and in A&E and expect people to survive um and yeah there may also be some excess deaths caused by winter covid in the way that winter viruses cause excess deaths every winter and it would be odd not to expect that to happen but the point is that what we've seen with the excess deaths this winter is uh, a, pl- a kind of plateauing you know they are there but they're plateaued and that's not what you see in an epidemic and if you remember in spring when we locked down and we locked down hard and everybody was really compliant, the deaths kept rising and kept rising. And we would all go and check every day to say, please say it's not bigger again today and it would be bigger again. And then it finally, finally peaked. But, you know, we weren't sure if it was really a peak and then finally, finally started to come down. All of that happened in lockdown, right? And so the idea that, that what we've done this time is why we don't have that huge spike of deaths. It's just not compatible with reality. Why would it be so different this time? Yeah, and no, I agree. Um, yeah, but I, I think the cognitive dissonance is strong. Um, mm. we, we'll just characterise what we're seeing as, well, that's what you see in second waves. <laughs> and then when we see mm. see something happening, oh, that's the third wave. Oh, yeah, that's of course it's the third wave. Mm. It's, it's going to be, it's like skimming a stone. You know, the first you know, the first jump is higher and then they gradually, you know, weaken. Now, I've heard people use that argument on both sides of the fence, but on the, hey, we're going to reach, you know, we're in endemic equilibrium and we're going to see just, you know, small peaks and troughs as we'd expect to see seasonally. And others say, well, no, there's there's absolutely second and third and fourth waves because because of the same rationale. But I guess the the, the needle people are trying to thread who are sitting on the fence or trying to make sense of this is, which is true. We, we, what are, are we? Are we causing more of a problem than than we're trying to cure? And is is this phenomenon of second and third waves true? Is it something you can and should expect with a pandemic, or is it in actual fact the effect of our policy decisions? I wish I could answer that question because I think it could you know put all of this to bed. But I know you and I can't because we just don't have the data. Well, if, I mean, the data comes from the studies on immunity and the studies on immunity have just been either ignored or totally misinterpreted. Um, and, you know, the government could be doing way more on that, but they're not. The, the antibody test that the government does every week to see how many of us have antibodies to COVID <clears throat> is a test that was designed to show who had COVID. So when you design a test, you have to have a group that will test positive and a group that will test negative. And all the manufacturers chose severe COVID hospitalized blood samples for the ones that should test positive and then chose pre-COVID blood donor samples for the ones that should test negative, which means that anybody who had prior immunity would test negative. That's how the tests were designed. So it is not a test of who is immune 
it's a test of who had it because it looks just for the unique bits. And it's an interesting question to answer that, you know, 7% of us had it in May. Um, but it doesn't answer the question of, well, how many of us are still susceptible to it? And we have got other things that do answer that. And they all seem to kind of converge around the 50% of us were immune before it arrived figure, which is interesting because if you add the 7% that had it to your 50% that were immune before it arrived, you're at the sort of herd immunity threshold that balance predicted of about 60%. And um, we've got now some good T cell tests that have come out that should be better than antibody testing because the antibodies fade, but the T cell response doesn't. So we should be able to use that to see how many of us had it in total. Um, because people keep arguing that the reason that we haven't got higher antibody levels as a population, despite the second wave, is because the first wave antibodies have gone at exactly the right ratio in every region. So it's sort of entertaining. But the T cell test should tell us that, and Public Health England are using it across the country. So at some point we'll have oh, really? results on that. I, I didn't yeah. realise there was a kind of commercialised yeah. T cell test. Yeah, it's quite new. Oh, excellent. Because I, 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 I agree. I mean, my, my understanding of immunology and, you know, my exploration of this this year particular has, has kind of, you know, spoken about this unsung hero, you know, T-cell immunity, you know, the, the helper cells and how they're really our predominant line of defense against viruses. Mm. And antibodies are perhaps more effective against bacterial infection. And obviously they wane in time. The B cells don't, but the antibodies do. Like so, there's just there's 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 context, there's nuance, there's depth yeah. to this discussion yeah. that we completely miss uh, in the headlines. It's all about you know antibody test is the you know the again the gold standard of who has been who has come into contact with the virus, but it it just isn't a true statement, is it? And especially as as you've said, like if we if the test that kind of defined the presence of of antibodies is somewhat working off a bit of a um ineffective hypothesis then we're just kind of we're shooting in the dark and we're, we're hoping that people just buy it and uh, there's just much more nuance to our immune system mm. whether it be our physical barrier our innate response innate responses no one's talking about host health i mean come on <laughs> if you're a healthy yeah. individual the, the chances of you progressing through to antibody production are and much much lower, right? Why are we not having that nuanced discussion, and why are we not helping people be healthy? Because surely that's the best defence. Absolutely, and you know, vitamin D and vitamin um, K. If you're having good vitamin D, and ivermectin is the other exciting thing because it's cheap and safe and works brilliantly as a prophylaxis, um, and yet isn't talked about, um, and it's also a brilliant treatment by the looks of it from the trials that have been done so far. Um, and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's the answer to your question about how you calm the hysteria down is you get everybody talking about ivermectin and then they go, oh, okay, they've cured it. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, that, that would disappoint me if it was, Claire, only because uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong supporter of nutrient-dense diets and genuinely caring for yourself through chronic decisions, not through you know, just medicine or a supplement, um, but instead making the right choices long-term around how how you maintain good health. We, we, we just don't, it's just not attractive either to the individuals, the public, 
or the government because it's it's a it's a long term commitment that requires willpower and requires us to push away from some of the bad habits we have around processed food consumption and no lack of appreciation for nutrient density. So I understand it's a difficult problem to solve, but yeah, we've spent all exactly stop- like no money and no effort trying to help people understand what good health is this year. Yeah, That's well, really disappointing. It is disappointing, but I don't think you're going to get people out of a state of fear based on telling them to eat better. <laughs> you could do it telling them there's a cure. But you're not going to do it yeah. telling them, no matter how good that advice is, when people are scared, they need something that's dramatic. Yeah, and that's, I guess, just accepting the, the psychological behaviour of humans, I guess. So yeah. that's a good close. Um, Claire, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, uh, your generous commitment to this conversation, and generally your generous commitment to bring some sense and rationality to the discussion. I do hope um, you get to grab some of your life back and, uh, you know, your pre-COVID career back over over the coming months. And it's not something that you and I and everyone else feel that we need to dedicate a whole year to. Let's hope. Um, how can people stay in touch with you, see what you're writing about? Uh, generally, what, how, where, how do you want to plug you and what you're, what you're about, Claire? So I'm um, at Claire Craig Path on Twitter. I've got a website, Logic in the Time of COVID, um i'm not trying to plug anything <laughs> <laughs> just just your presence is enough yeah. that's 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 fantastic and um are you are you expecting to you know get into you know a funded job this year or are you just going to kind of see how that how this year plans out i would i would hope that i would be in a funded job this year yes um but i'm not looking right at the moment because it's all hotting up isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's hard it's hard to be in two places at once mentally, yeah. isn't it? Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Claire. Uh, all the best for 2021. Uh, and let's hope that um science prevails. You too. What a good note to end on. Thanks very much. Thank Bye-bye. You. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.